from the Bookwaves archives, an interview with writer, critic, and activist Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag was born in 1933, grew up in Tucson, Arizona, received a BA in University of Chicago, did graduate work in philosophy, literature, and theology at Harvard University and St. Anne's College in Oxford. She wrote four novels, The Benefactor, Death Kit, The Volcano Lover, and In America, a collection of short stories, several plays, and eight works of nonfiction, including Against Interpretation, Illness as Metaphor, Where the Stress Falls, and Regarding the Pain of Others. Her books were translated into 32 languages. Sontag also wrote and directed four feature-length films, directed several plays, and served as president of the American Center for PEN, Penn. She died on December 28, 2004. This interview, conducted by Richard Lupoff and myself, was recorded in San Francisco on March 17, 2000, when she was on tour for her book In America, which later won the National Book Award. Now, In America concerns a Polish actress in 1876 who decides to emigrate to America. I read in a recent article that you had been working in the 80s on a novel about a Russian poet coming to America sometime later. Obviously, the theme has intrigued you for some time, and I'd like you to talk about the idea of a foreigner coming to America and becoming American. I find that the stories that grab me, the ones that I decide to turn into stories or novels, uh, I always feel the story has pockets, that it's... Uh, you're telling this story, but you're also telling some other story at the same time. And the story of a foreigner, the story of someone discovering at a certain level of intensity another place, is uh, very um, compelling for me. The last novel I wrote, it was published about eight years ago, called uh, The Volcano Lover, that concerned uh, some foreigners. They were English living in Italy in the late 18th century. This is about a group of uh, very well-educated and uh, privileged and uh, talented people from Poland who come to America in the 1870s. Uh, the main person is a, the leading Polish actress. And I, something about that uh, situation of being a foreigner seems to me a wonderful vantage point for for feeling, for understanding for noticing, in a way, a, a novelist, a writer, is somebody who notices the world. And foreigners are people who notice things. In a certain way, the story of this actress and her friends, as they become more American, they notice less because the edge has, has come off it and they have started to be what first seemed very uh, alien to them. But it's true that there were a couple of fiction projects that I had one was about the Russian poet coming to America. That was supposed to be uh, taking place now. And an earlier story, a story that took place earlier, actually in the 1920s, about an actress. And I started both of these books, and I wasn't satisfied with where they were going. They didn't seem to stretch and open out in the right way. And then when I thought of this story, I knew I had the right story to tell a lot of other stories with. When you attempt a project and decide this just isn't working and it becomes a failed project, does that material just, in, in essence, get a wastebasket treatment, or do you recycle that in some way? I wish I could recycle it, but uh, it's neither wastebasket nor recycle. It's just bottom drawer. And I think, oh, maybe I could come back, and suddenly I would know how to go on with it. 
it's sort of sealed off. I couldn't reuse any of it. But the impulse to work on certain material, that remains until you've satisfied that impulse. And I wanted very much to write a theater novel because I'm fascinated with the life of, of actors and the, the life of, of theater, of representation. And I wanted to write a novel about America. Your protagonist in, in America, uh, Marina, is allegedly based on a real Polish woman of the 19th century, and her uh, associate, let's call him Richard, is also based on a real person of the 19th century. Would you tell us who the prototypes were and talk about how you converted them into these fictional characters? Well, it was easy to convert them into fictional characters because I just didn't know enough about them to uh, in any way attempt something that would have been uh, a work of history. I'm not a historian. I'm a fiction writer. There was a real story. There was a famous Polish actress who played in this country and became a great star under the name, it was a short abbreviation and modification of her, her real Polish name, who uh, played under the name of Helena Majeska. And she was a great star of the late 19th century American theater. She had been a great actress, the great star of Polish theater. At the age of 35, she threw over her career decided to abandon the stage forever and came with her husband, teenage child by a previous uh, relationship, and some friends, one of whom was a young writer, a beginning writer, journalist, who subsequently became a very well-known popular novelist named Henrik Sienkiewicz, and he's the author of a novel that everybody's at least heard of and once upon a time everybody read, major, major bestseller called Quo Vadis, out of which, of course, uh, from which uh, many films were also made. So there were these real people, these um, educated Polish people, and that too was interesting to me to think about how America would have looked to smart Europeans who would already know something about America. These are people who who could have read Tocqueville, Democracy in America. So then what would they think when they came to this kind of wild California, Southern California, because that's where they ended up for a while in the 1870s? What do they think of New York when they landed? They had a lot of ideas about America in their head. How did those ideas, how were those ideas modified by the reality that they encountered this America that was 10 years after the Civil War and changing quite rapidly as Whitman and other people uh, were lamenting, you know, the good old America. America is always looking back to some golden age and every previous age is better than the one now. But isn't everybody always looking back to a previous golden age? I think this is universal and eternal. I think it's particularly American. Yeah, to a certain extent, it's universal because it's in all the great myths of, of, of world cultures. But since America is so much based on the idea of a fresh start, of transformation, of uh, reinventing yourself, of discarding the past, Americans are involved in a, in a very strange, complex relationship to the past. We're great forgetters. We're great amnesiacs. And then we're people also obsessed with recovering the past. We're a country of archives and historical societies and, and record keepers and museums. I've been told that there are more museums in this country, in the United States of America, than all the rest of the world combined. So we love to collect the past, memorialize the past, archive the past, and we also like to put it behind us and think that we're constantly reinventing ourselves. You're known, of course, as a cultural commentator, usually about events that are happening in the present. Uh, and certainly you have a narrator of sorts who is perhaps Susan Sontag, perhaps not. 
commenting on this from the present time. You could have written about a different era, yet you chose 1876. Is there some correlation between 1876 and today, do you think? Is it just happenstance? Well, I found a lot of more of freedom as a novelist, as a fiction writer, and as a storyteller by setting stories in the past with the last novel, The Volcano Lover, and this one, a new one, In America. I don't mean that now I'm committed to always setting stories in the past, but for me, it has brought on a kind of new freedom, new freedom as a writer, new expressiveness as a writer. I wouldn't, however, set a novel in the Middle Ages or ancient Rome. I think I wouldn't ever have gone further back than the end of the 18th century, which could be described as the beginning of modern times, the period after the French Revolution, let's say, or the American Revolution. I think you are still writing about the present when you're writing about anything that, with the right insight that took place in the last 200 years. The interesting thing is when you start to read, as I had to do, because I'm certainly not a historian and I didn't know all that much about the period. I knew very little about it. And when I started doing a lot of reading of original documents and newspaper stuff and, and diaries and letters and historical works about this period, the 1870s and 1880s in the United States, I was surprised how much it sounded like the America of today. This country has changed less than we think. If you go back and read Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is probably the greatest single book ever written about this country, and it was written in the early 1830s, well, you would think 170 years ago, this was really a different country. It was a very, it had very small population, mostly from the British Isles, except for Africans who had been brought here in chains. Nothing like the multicultural, complex, huge continental country we know today, fed by so many different cultural sources. And yet, two-thirds of what this very intellectual, very brilliant Frenchman coming here around 1830, two-thirds of what he described as distinctively American, it's still true. It absolutely describes the America of today. So it is a contemporary novel written with a full panoply of very modern fictional techniques, but it's a story that takes place in the past. This mention to something called Barnumization, the Barnumization of, I guess, the arts and the characters. And I think that still continues today. I'd like you to talk a little about that, how it relates to how your characters react in the past and also the Barnumization of America today. Well, I'm not sure. I, I can't be 100% sure, but I think I made that word up. It's true. I do have a person who turns out to be a very important character in the book, Edwin Booth, the great Shakespearean actor who kind of takes over, kidnaps the book at the end. He's lamenting... Uh, the problems of an increasingly commercialized, uh, celebrity-oriented theater world. And he uses this phrase, and I really feel, well, I'm talking about a character who bears the name of a real historical person. Of course, it's my Edwin Booth. There isn't sure. a word in his speech which I actually didn't make up. And yet, of course, I feel and that's the the looniness of the fiction writer. I feel he's a real person, and he just said these things, and I took them down. And one of the things he said was, of course, what do you expect in this country? Everything is being increasingly Barnumized, increasingly Barnumized. Barnum being, of course, the great showman who invented the celebrity tour. He invented a lot of the 
uh, sort of fundamental strategies of the sort of what people call the celebrity culture. I don't know how much of a culture it is, but anyway, it's a it's certainly a way of promoting things and focusing people's attention on personality and on eccentricity rather than on their work. He was a noted showman, a legendary showman, and he brought over a uh, Swedish singer named Jenny Lind in the 1850s. This is 20 years before uh, my novel uh, starts, and he made a tour throughout America she wasn't at all known in this country, and he gave her this name, the Swedish Nightingale. And everybody in America knew about the Swedish Nightingale and little facts, mostly invented, of course, about her life <laughs> and her tastes and her eccentricity and her some scandalous thing were kind of dosed out to the press. And people lined up around the block, and they had to hear this singer. And she made a zillion dollars in you know money of that time. And he set the pattern for something which... Uh, well, how can I say? You asked me about now. You always think it can't get any more extreme <laughs> than it is, our celebrity culture. But it does. It just goes on and on and on and on. That you're famous for being famous. And what interests people is something about you and not about what you do. Or rather, what you do is just the support for their interest in you. And our politics becomes that, and uh, well, it's you know, there's nothing original that we're saying. Uh, it's one of the most remarked on things about American life. Do you think then that it's a distinctly American idea? The celebrity gossip rag started, insofar as I know, in England. Certainly, the American culture has somehow taken over the whole world. I mean, you can find boomboxes, I would guess, in Sarajevo where you were. Something must be resonating through the world about this. Yes, there were boom boxes in Sarajevo, certainly before the war when you could get batteries or, or there was electricity to plug your radios into because Sarajevo is in Europe. Uh, therefore, in fact, entirely tuned into American popular culture like sure. every other part of Europe. I'll tell you, in fact, you're alluding, of course, the fact that I was there a good part of the siege from 93 uh, um, through, through early 96. And... Uh, People were absolutely, totally cut off. No mail, no phone, no electricity, no heat, no glass in the windows, no water, no you know, food, nothing, and constant shelling and bombarding. But one of the choicest things was to find some AA batteries, turn on your, if you had a, a little radio, and get some news from the outside world. And suddenly, I remember during the height of everything monstrous and people just dropping, you know, dead on all sides of you, somebody said, Kurt Cobain is dead. And I said, oh. And, and I said, oh, oh. I said, I, I wanted to laugh because these people seem so upset, you know. And I said, oh. But I didn't seem upset enough. And so this guy said to me, you probably don't like Nirvana, do you? And I said, not wanting to be shown up to be totally square, I said, oh, sure, sure. I like Seattle sound and so on, uh, you know. And, and the guy shook his head and he said, no, nah, I know, I know. You probably like Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> grandma. <laughs> you probably just like. So, of course, American culture is everywhere. Uh, forms of American fantasy are biggest export besides uh, weapons. But it is true that the full machinery and approach of advertising and the mass culture and the celebrity culture was developed here as it 
wasn't anywhere else. You could say the germs were everywhere because consumerism was born in England and in France, actually, earlier than here. The first big department store is in France. It's not in New York. So wherever you have consumerism, you and, and that does come into play by the 1840s, 1850s, you have the start of this kind of advertising and focus on personality. But the fullness of it and all the strategies of it certainly are our invention, <laughs> along with other wonderful inventions. Uh, Susan, there is so much of the theater in, in America, including some terms which I was rather surprised to find in use as early as 1876. Specifically, did they speak of a green room in that era, and did they call stars stars? Absolutely. Green room is certainly at least the early 19th century. When it ever was green, I don't know. I've never seen a green room in my life. A green room, for the very few people listening and who might not know, is that room backstage where actors hang out. It's both canteen and a place, sort of lounge, and a place where they might receive their friends uh, after a performance or whatever. Those are, are um, very old terms. Star is a very old term. And another wonderful one, which I did not know the origin of, winging it. I knew there was such a thing as winging it, and I sort of understood what that meant, and I'd heard actors say, well, I'm going to have to wing it. Winging it is just sort of going on into a public arena, not feeling totally prepared. And I don't know if I'm the only person who thought this had something to do with aircraft. I have suddenly how imagine winging it, it sounds pretty silly now that I know the real reason, I mean, the real explanation of the term was making a landing with your motor off or your engine defective so that you just could have coasted in on your wings. Not at all. Winging it is a theater term at least early 19th century, and it means standing in the wings of the theater, learning your lines a couple of minutes before you have to go on stage. <laughs> Another historical note about in America, there's a character, I think his name is von Roebling or von Rebling, a German, who invents a helicopter in 1876, or a sort of helicopter. Is that totally concocted? No, it isn't totally concocted. There are documents. There was somebody named Delshaw. I came across this quite by accident, who died in Houston at a very advanced age in the 20s or 30s. And he left a volumes of documents purporting to relate the experiments of a flying club in the, actually the 1860s earlier than I've put it. And his associate was somebody named von Roebling. There's been some talk, of course, that he was some kind of loony with a great imagination, and these are complete forgeries. But I decided to take this as a, as a true story and have one of my main characters become involved in this flying club. There are, apart from this uh, material, which I just came across once when I was hanging out in Houston and there was a little exhibit of the Delshaw and von Roebling notebooks in a local library, there were repeated sightings of, and I don't mean UFOs, I mean what looked like winged craft or versions of helicopters. There's one over in Manhattan in 1879, and I read a newspaper article about it. So whether, again, this is hallucination or there really were some early experiments which we don't have enough information about. We certainly know there was a lot of ballooning and gliding in that period, and balloon clubs and gliding clubs, particularly in California. 
Was there a utopian community as the one described in Anaheim? These people who came from Poland, on whom I modeled part of the story, did think they were starting a kind of commune. And there were other communes all over the country, many of them inspired by the ideas of a, a French a theorist, a very wacky and fascinating French theorist of communal life called Fourier. The most famous is one, a domestic version of this, where Hawthorne and some of the other New Eng famous New England figures uh, spent some time called Brook Farm in the late 1840s, early 1850s in Massachusetts. But actually, the very first Polish colony in this country was a utopian Fourierist colony in Texas. So yes, there were those sorts of colonies all over the country. What was also fascinating to me when I started again to pour over historical documents, which I hasten to add, I did as I was writing the book. If I'd ever tried to do that before I started the book, I would never would have started the book. You had to invent and then keep checking and see what help or inspiration or correction you got from some side reading. Uh, there also were cults of a, let's say, non-utopian kind, of a more familiar kind with a, with a very authoritarian guru that were based on diet or exercises or strange sexual practices. These were all over the country. We have been, um, particularly in the West, the Southwest, Southern California, uh, very hospitable to this kind of formation for a lot longer than Americans would imagine. Why do you think that is? New start, self-transformation. America is a very radical country. We're very conservative in some really weird ways. Uh, we're very punitive in some really weird ways. And great believers in the new start being radically remade, self-remade, self-invented. That's the very radical anarchic part of this country. I think we are very hospitable to those sorts of cults and sects. There's a statement that your protagonist, Marina, makes at one point. She is a great actress, a truly world-class superstar, we call her today. She makes a very self-revelatory statement to the effect that an artist must think only of herself. Ultimate total selfishness is required for greatness. Now, I wonder if that's just Marina saying that or if that's Susan Sontag using Marina as a mouthpiece. Well, first of all, I could be wrong, but I don't think she does say that. And uh, I certainly don't agree with it. I think you could just as well say a great artist is a great self-sacrificer who is totally devoted to the activity to which she or he has consecrated herself or himself. I don't think of it as selfishness, and I, I think that it can look like selfishness. I do think of it as obsession, and obsession sometimes cuts out a lot of ordinary uh, human responsibilities and connections. I mean, Marina, for instance, is someone who has a, a marvelous young man in love with her and says, I'm sorry I'm going to stay with my husband, not just because she loves her husband, which she does, but also because the relationship with her husband is solid, established, not a problem. With this young man, she's going to have to give him a lot more attention because it's a real romance. She prefers a marriage, which then allows her to devote much more of her life to her career. I would never say, and certainly I'm not speaking for myself at all, uh, this is not a self-portrait, that to be an artist requires total selfishness. I think it requires total commitment and it is a commitment of the self, and it could be even a sacrifice of the self to the activity. Susan Sontag, your career has taken many turns, and the latest of which is that you call yourself primarily a fiction writer these days. 
as opposed to an essayist, which is uh, what you focused on earlier in your career. What do you think is the reason for this shift? Is it just that you want to be more artistic or or is there something else going on? It doesn't seem that way at all to me. I began as a novelist. My first book is a novel called The Benefactor. I then wrote a few essays. Then I wrote another novel. I always thought that I was, well, a writer. I mean, I don't, artistic is, of course, kind of corny word, and I would blush to use it. I am totally committed to the enterprise of literature, and I think that the novel is a greater and wider and deeper form than the essay. I began as a fiction writer, and I also wrote essays. The essays did have a lot of influence, and I'm proud to have written them, but fiction, it's not a change. It's just, just, <laughs> sound like an American, uh, it's just a breakthrough. It's just that I'm a better fiction writer now, I think, than I was before. I'm a bigger fiction writer now. So I return after some hesitations and a lot of of thinking and worrying about how to expand my means and my scope as, as a fiction writer. I return full-time to fiction with a lot more confidence. But it's not as if I went from one thing to the other. I began with fiction. I did lose my nerve a little bit. I wasn't writing exactly the fiction I wanted to write, so I let myself write more essays. And now I am writing the fiction I want, so that's what I want to stick with. I'd like to ask you a little about the form that your writing takes here. You use diary, you use monologue, you use various different forms. Why are you switching around so much? What are you What are you doing there? I don't know. I mean, that seemed to be the best way to tell the story. There isn't one way, way to write a novel. This is a multi-voice novel. It's an epic novel. It has a lot of different characters, has a lot of different points of view. I don't think of it as switching around any more than, I don't know, if I may take so grandiose a uh, an example, Joyce. James Joyce. Joyce. Oh, you Ulysses. you got it. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Okay. All right. It's obvious, but you know what I mean. This is not a Joycean book, I hasten to add, but the notion that a book could be polyphonic, that it could be multi-voiced, that you could use a number of different methods. Sure, the great example of that is Ulysses. I wanted to shift perspective. That's what's modern about the book. That's why it's not quote-unquote, a historical novel. In this. I'm not trying to write a 19th century novel, though I've written a novel which takes place in the 19th century. That's a very important distinction. I don't know how to write a novel any other way than this way. I, don't, I hope I won't write the next one like this. This one isn't like The Volcano Lover. Part of the pleasure and challenge of writing fiction is to feel you are moving on or doing something different or exploring a different material and different means. But it seems very normal to me to use multiple points of view. By the way, even the 19th century does that. I don't know if you have ever read a, a novel that has a reputation for being a kind of commercial, popular novel. It's actually a wonderful book, uh, The Woman in White by Wilkie mm -hmm. Collins. Collins was a friend of Dickens. In fact, he published a lot of his stuff in uh, Dickens' magazine, Household Words. And this was an immense bestseller. His book sold almost as much as Dickens. And it's a totally fascinating book that I only d discovered not so long ago because somebody said, read The Woman in White. And uh, I don't know, it was like somebody telling me to read, I should read The Fountainhead or something. I thought, what, <laughs> did, should I really read this famous Victorian bestseller? And this friend said, no, no, it's really good. And it is. And one of the things that's really good about it is constant switching of point of view and method of narration, including letters, diaries, monologues, third person, and so on. So it's a method. I think it's a very valid method to create a big world, not just 
tell a story inside somebody's head. And if I have any criticism or sort of restlessness, rather, thinking back on my early fiction, it's because it isn't epic, because it is just inside one head. And I wanted to make a world. To return to In America for a moment, there are certain attitudes that I believe characters express. I hope I'm not misquoting you again, but you'll punch me out once more uh, if I am. At one point, I got the sense that Poland loves failure, but America loves success. Well, one of the characters says this. Poland was a country in the 19th century like Bosnia in the last uh, decade, which had a tragic history and in which people had to come to terms with a great historical defeat. Poland actually ceased to exist from the end of the 18th century until the end of the First World War, from 1795 to 1919. It was an occupied country that had no legal existence, had a linguistic and cultural existence, but it was triply occupied by Russia in the east, Austria in the southwest, and Prussia in the northwest. It was very hard for Poles to be historical optimists. They would have been crazy if they didn't have to come to terms with the notion of a tragic destiny. This is a country founded on an optimistic interpretation of human nature, a sense of limitlessness, a continental country, a great success story, a country that has been, and the dreams of most people in the world for almost 200 years, and a country very devoted to the idea of success. It's not, quote, my idea. It's an idea that one of my characters, I think, would normally have. And that's, of course, once again, the great thing of a novel, that one character can say one thing and another character can say something else, and you, the writer, can agree with both of them. Somebody once asked Tom Stoppard, the wonderful English playwright, why he wrote plays and not novels. And he said, well, the great thing about writing plays is I get to contradict myself. I get to put some of my ideas in one character's mouth and the opposite in another character's mouth. And, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily less true of, 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 of a novel. You just mentioned before that this is an optimistic country, and it is today, of course. Uh, everything we hear is optimism. Things aren't that good for most people except for those who have money in the market. And there could be a crash coming up. I recall in the 1970s, people were not optimistic. And I just wonder how long this optimism can continue and whether it's related to the economy or whether there's something internal and that it would continue in bad times. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think there are lots of people in this country who are not so optimistic. It depends who you're listening to. If you're listening to the dot-coms, uh, then it all sounds very optimistic. If you're listening to the people who went to Seattle for WTO uh, meetings, uh, they have another view about what's happening in this country. If you listen to people talking about the political process in this country, I don't think people feel very optimistic. I think that most people think that there's a tremendous degradation of the political process in this country due to the absolute supremacy of money in uh, choosing candidates and making elections possible. There is a cult of selfishness in this country and perhaps a, a feeling that if you just care about yourself and don't care too much about your community and you're lucky and you're the right color and, and haven't gotten ill and then therefore can't pay you for your proper medical expenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you might get by and have a rosy future ahead of you. America loves winners. But 
I think they're big reserves of gloom here. It's just that the reigning ideology, was, which masks so many of the real problems of this country, is one of optimism. Or, I don't want to worry, it's okay. It's complicated because there is this uh, American exceptionalism. Americans think they're exceptions. The country feels like an exception. To some extent, it is in good ways and in bad ways. We're an exception... Uh, with respect, uh, I'll just take one of my favorite subjects, uh, capital punishment. The whole civilized world has reached a consensus that capital punishment is something that that is not civilized. And we now have a, a man uh, who's about to run for president, whom I consider a mass murderer, namely George W. Bush, I think, has killed 214 people in Texas. And, and, even, even, and counting. And even by Texan standards, that's a lot of people to have killed. Susan Sontag, now you've written this novel. Are you working on another novel? Are we going to see some nonfiction from you? Or are you going to write a, a play? All of the above. Actually, the next book I'm going to publish is a book of essays because there are a lot of uncorrected essays and they're starting to grow whiskers and I think I better put them in book form. But I'm not, I'm not writing essays right now. I am writing another play. I've been writing plays the last couple of years and yes, I am beginning to think about another novel, which will also be about foreigners, only not in America, in Japan. So there's a lot of writing still to come. In her final four years after this interview, Susan Sontag published a long essay in 2003 regarding the pain of others concerning the visual representation of war and violence. Following her death, a collection of essays and speeches was published in 2007 and her journals and notebooks were published in two volumes in 2008 and 2012. She died of leukemia on December 28, 2004, at the age of 71. Her illness and death were chronicled in the book Swimming in a Sea of Death by her son David Reef, an award-winning 2014 documentary regarding Susan Sontag is now available on Canopy, the streaming app available free through your local library. This interview with Susan Sontag was recorded in San Francisco on March 16, 2000. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>